0: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
1: It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston.
2: You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar
1: means ahead of the curve.
3: It's also perspectives. How does this particular
0: story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, after special elections and contentious races, the dust has finally settled in the political landscape of Massachusetts. We sit down with three of the Bay State's newest class of lawmakers, a small sample of movers and shakers, who say they are ready to make a difference in their communities and for their constituents. Later in the show, just over five years ago, Black Lives Matter was born in a moment of frustration and pain. Now the social justice organization boasts 40 chapters and is recognized around the world for its work combating police brutality.
3: I witnessed so much policing in my neighborhood, towards my family. Some of them are brutalized by law enforcement and I knew that we just didn't deserve this. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn-Cullors has
0: captured the group's story and her own in her new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Andy Vargas, Democratic Massachusetts State Representative for the 3rd Essex District, which includes Haverhill. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to have you. Lydia Edwards, Boston City Councilor representing District 1, which includes Charleston, East Boston, and the North End and Waterfront. Hello, Lydia. Hi. And Ruth Ann Fuller, Mayor of Newton. Welcome, Ruth Ann. Hello, Kelly. <laughs> so I wanted to have this conversation because I felt as though there were so many special elections and so many names flying about during the special election season that many people, not just myself, were. Who are you and what's happening and who are the people now in place after all of the voting has happened? So let me begin and go around because each of you have fascinating stories. So I'll start with you, Andy. Why now? Why did you want to run for this office now?
2: Sure. So I think part of it for me was, you know, I had already served on the city council in Haverhill and I had decided that public service was going to be a vehicle that I would try to use to implement change in my hometown in Haverhill. That decision was made after graduating from Boston University, where we're always, as seniors transition out, we we start to think about what is next, right? What career changes am I going to make? Where am I going to be physically located? And growing up in Haverhill, what happens with young people in Gateway Cities in particular is we commit ourselves to going to college and we commit ourselves to never coming back, right? Mm -hmm. And for a long time, that was my plan. So I had already committed to coming back to my hometown. I changed my mind. And we were already focusing on issues of education, of housing in Haverhill on the municipal level. But seeing an opening to be able to sort of affect systemic change at the state level that then obviously affects our municipalities was the perfect opportunity to take that to the next level. That's
0: Andy Vargas. He is Massachusetts State Representative for the 3rd Essex District, which includes Haverhill. Ruth Ann Fuller, why now?
1: Why now? Because the city of Newton is a great city, but we are facing real challenges affordability is changing who can live in the city as the market forces are changing, home prices, developers changing what's being built in our neighborhoods, traffic and congestion, streets in not the condition that they need to be. We've got an amazing education system. How do we continue to support that? And then how do we do this in a financially sustainable way? How do we pay for this? I've been a city councilor for eight years, and I wanted to dig in on these issues, take charge of Newton's future, and move us forward.
0: That's Ruth Ann Fuller. She's mayor of Newton. Now Lydia Edwards. Why now for you?
1: There were a couple things. I think it comes
4: from uh, being in community organizing. So I was a legal services attorney for years, and also worked directly in worker centers organizing immigrants. And my community, especially in East Boston, is, has changed a great deal in the 10 years that I've lived there. And so what we have now is an opportunity in many cases to really lead the city, if not the state, in how development should be. We have potentially Amazon coming to our district. We have the newest neighborhood coming into Boston in our district, in Charlestown. We are also dealing with massive changes with the largest housing project in New England uh, being redone. So we have an opportunity in so many cases to really lead and push and organize a community And I'm really excited. And that really speaks to my heart. And the position of a city councilor, I think, is one of the is the closest to being a community organizer. Lydia
0: Edwards, and she is a Boston city councilor representing District 1, which includes Charleston, East Boston and the North End and Waterfront. Now, each of you have our first, really, in some way, which I'm now about to articulate. So I'm starting with you, Ruth Ann, because you're the 31st mayor for Newton and you're the first woman.
1: Right. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean I mean we have to
0: note these things. This is pretty interesting at this time.
1: I'm very aware that for not just the girls in our community, but our boys that seeing a woman as being a leader of the city makes a difference. The agenda changes, the status quo changes and people's perception of what women can do changes. Now, not to put too fine
0: a point on it, but if I understand the breadth of your area that you are now governing, are you Tom Brady's mayor?
1: Unfortunately, no. I would proudly claim him, but he's just over the border into Brookline. Okay, just checking.
0: Just wanted to find out. But
1: sometimes he shops in the grocery store I go to, so I catch a glimpse of him occasionally. All right.
0: Well, he's got to interact with you in any case. Lydia Edwards, you are the first non-white municipal election candidate and the first woman to run in the district in 25 years.
4: So just to be clear about the first, I'm not the first non-white candidate. For sure, there was certainly people who paved the way for me and kept chipping at that ceiling to help me and ultimately became my mentors in this process. I'm also not the first woman candidate either. So there are a lot of people out there trying to really represent the beautiful diversity in our district. I am the first to win this seat, and I, I often try to really emphasize the first that I chose, not mm-hmm. the first that I couldn't choose. I didn't choose what I look like, but I did choose to be an attorney, a community organizer, to learn Spanish and Portuguese, and those things also make me first in this district as well.
0: Because you're a black woman, we should say. so. Probably people are not so. looking at you. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so. I wanted
4: to make sure <laughs> yeah. that people understood that there are certain firsts that you can aspire to, that you can work for, and certain firsts that you're certainly proud of. But I did not earn this, I earned other things as well. And I wanted that to also be what part of my first narrative. Now, Andy, you have a real—you have a
0: lot of firsts. First of all, people may not know that when you went to city council, you were 22 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you've gone to the state legislature, but you're not the first to go at 24. There was actually somebody else who went at 24 years yeah, old. Yeah, actually, uh, mm-hmm.
2: Chairman Brian Dempsey, when he was first elected, he was 24 as well. And there's also a member of the legislature right now that I think is two months younger than me. So mm. I'm the second youngest currently in there right now, but probably the first Latino to have this seat as well. So what does that mean for you? For me, it just, you know, I I go back to thinking about my time at Haverhill High, right, where I was the only Latino in my AP and honors classes and feeling really uncomfortable at times and kind of being stuck in two worlds where my cousins were in other classes and I was in, you know, AP and honors classes and I wasn't really fitting in in either of those worlds. And so I think about how using the office of state representative, obviously for policy and constituent services, but also for the message and and the image that we're able to provide to those Latinos and Latinas that are going through our education system. In Haver right now, that can aspire to whatever they choose to go into. So uh, for me, it's I'm immensely proud to be Latino and having sort of the best of both worlds. But again, I, I agree with the counselor that there were many folks who uh, also helped me in helping me get to this place.
0: I just have to note in the in the research. Um, less than 10 years ago, you were visiting the State House as a, in a teen youth group?
2: Yeah. So okay, that's, just so
0: we are clear about yeah. the trajectory.
2: So, <laughs> yeah, well, at, at 16 years old, I walked into the State House for the first time. We were working on a civic education bill, um, and the irony is is that we're still working on that bill right now, and there's a working group on that. But, um, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, by teens leading the way, planting that seed when I was 16 years old, uh, and eight years later, me walking in on the other side of the, you know, advocacy table as a legislator later goes to show what what civics can do.
0: All right. So all of you have jumped in with both feet. There's not a one of you. There's not. Already hasn't introduced some legislation or made an announcement about some changes that are happening in your areas that actually have gotten quite a bit of attention. So, Lydia, I'm going to start with you this time, and you have just proposed a way of sort of putting a stop, if this gets approved, to a lot of property speculation, which drives up prices in your community and also leads to gentrification in some areas.
4: Uh, Well, it leads to displacement, which is our real concern. Yes, so we have introduced an ordinance to have a. actually on speculation in Boston and specifically within that to analyze flipping, to look at short-term rentals, Airbnb, to look at condo conversion and also to look at foreign investment in our community and how that is actually pushing people out is not creating the housing that we need for our middle-class and working-class families, and that the narrative that we should build more in order to provide for them really is a trickle-down policy that I do not accept as the way out of this housing crisis that we have. So we need to have a real frank conversation. We really need to set standards for investment in Boston, and we need to be bold and unafraid to say, if you're not here to help all of us, if you're only here to make money, then this isn't the city for you.
0: Now, let me pick up on the you need to be bold and unafraid, because some of these issues, as Andy just said, have been around for a while. But it seems to me that all, in all of you, and we'll, we'll get to the, the other two, your voices, you're coming right at some things that are either very dicey for some people or haven't been dealt with in a very bold way. Do you think that's because who you are and, and this particular race, you were ready to go to just leap in in a way that maybe, I don't know who your opponents weren't, because people were a little bit taken aback, I have to say, Lydia Edwards, Boston City Councilor, when you jumped right out there with this,
4: which is pretty tough. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I was very clear in the message when I was running. I was going to be an independent, impactful voice for my district, and I was unapologetic about that. I spoke about my record of organizing domestic workers. I spoke about how I stood outside people's houses who didn't pay their nannies, so they knew who they were getting, and they were proud to have that, and that was a voice that I promised to bring, and I said from day one, I'm going to bring it, and so I don't think I'm being inconsistent with what I ran on, and I also think very frankly, as I mentioned, there's a real housing spectrum crisis crisis in my own district, building the largest housing project, but also dealing with building a whole new neighborhood, hopefully learning from the mistakes at the seaport, and making sure that we are leading the way. So you can't be timid and try to lead as well.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are State Representative Andy Vargas, Boston City Councilor Lydia Edwards, you just heard her, and Mayor of Newton Ruth Ann Fuller. We're discussing their plans and aspirations as newly elected lawmakers in Massachusetts. Over to you, Ruth Ann Fuller. Same thing. Jumped right in. I should mention that I did not know until I started doing the research that used to work here at WGBH some years ago. And you had that as your background. You're a business strategist for a long time. As you said, you served on the council and then stopped doing that work to be at home, which, by the way, came up as an issue in your campaign, and then came back sort of Fiercely talking about visioning for Newton, addressing the economic divide. Talk about some of the first initiatives you put on the table as you've been doing your listening tour.
1: So for the first 30 days in office now, I've been making sure that I am all over the city talking, but more importantly, listening to both residents and businesses. And yes, right now, the median sales price for a home in Newton is $1.1 million. A family's income has to be $200,000 to afford that mortgage. That means 70% of the people in Newton can't afford to buy in right now. So we do have a real affordability issue here. And it's compounded by developers coming into Newton, whether in residential neighborhoods or in our village centers or our commercial corridors, and doing just what Liddy was talking about, buying in Newton and changing the character of Newton. So right now I've put uh, immediately in front of the city council a visioning process that will result in zoning for one of our major corridors, Washington Street Corridor. So we take charge of Newton's future. We decide what the city should be in the coming 10, 20, 30 years, create the zoning that matches our vision, and then have the developers build what we want. Do you think
0: in the same way that I was talking to uh, Lydia, that this go around for you, you'd been a city councilor, when you came back, it's like, you know what, I don't have time. I, we got to go right at this right
1: now. <laughs> it's particularly true because the world doesn't stop as you're campaigning or once you become a city councilor or a mayor or a state legislature. Developers right now are knocking on our door and putting in special permits and coming up with their vision of what our city should be. So we have to move fast with all deliberate speed and at the same time get genuine input from residents on what the future should be. That's actually the hardest part, to listen really carefully and build consensus Because probably, like in Boston or in Haverhill, not everybody agrees what the future of Newton should be. But boy, we have to do it now and we have to do it fast so that we don't lose that to the developers.
0: Andy Vargas,
1: you have
0: been appointed to three committees since you've arrived in the state legislature, and you're already out there with some legislation. One of them has to do with a local net neutrality bill because the federal one got overturned by the current FCC chairman. Why did you feel that that was something that was particularly of uh good interest for your constituents.
2: Yeah, so uh, for a couple of reasons, but first I'll sort of explain net neutrality because it's kind of, uh, for a lot of people, still an ambiguous term. Um, And and the best way that I describe it is that right now, when you log on to the internet, you have fair access and speeds to all websites, right? In some countries, when you pay for internet service, you're buying packages very similar to TV packages, right? You can buy the package that has ESPN. You can buy the package that has Lifetime. Uh, If you're my grandmother, you buy the package that has Univision and Telemundo. (laughs) But here in in the United States, for internet, you have access to the entire internet at the same speed, right? Without net neutrality, what that does is create different highways and make it very similar to broadcast TV in that you have to pick um, your internet packages, right? And so in that case, what that does is that right now we already have a digital divide and in that Internet speeds are already different amongst low-income to moderate-income to high-income families, right? And knowing how important the Internet has become uh, for not only our uh, personal, uh, professional, but also educational lives, uh, we need to make sure that access to the Internet and the speeds that folks have are equal across incomes. But the other issue with this is uh, relative to our First Amendment rights, right, and the consumer protection, in that providers are able to now say, we don't like that website. So we're going to slow down the speeds for that, right? And that's a problem. And so seeing that other states have already taken action on that, we decided to introduce legislation that would ensure that we preserve net neutrality here by also ensuring that the state only get into contracts with companies that are net neutral, right? So using the power of the state's purse to do that. And so it's been encouraging in that we've had 60 plus co-sponsors on that legislation. And just last week, you know, the governor took interest with what the governor of Montana has done to address net neutrality. So we're looking forward to continuing to push that.
0: I note that the other legislation I think you put forward had to do with utility polls. So it just reminds, I, I just say that because I want to remind people that what all three of you do is really connect with the local folks in a way that some people don't feel connected to you know, national candidates. Tell me about the utility
2: polls. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, so that goes back to sort of my time on the council, and it's an issue that several municipalities are seeing And that there's this double poll issue, right? And then the mayor's uh, giving me the thumbs up here. Um, And so we're trying to hold uh, utility companies uh, accountable for those double polls and ensuring that they get addressed because they're a safety hazard for residents. You know, I always talk about the fact that People think that politics is this distant thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's all around us, right? When you wake up and you turn the faucet on, that water comes from your water department. When you take your, you know, drugs, those are drugs that are regulated by the FDA. When you get on the highway, that's, you know, DPW. So it's all around us. And taking action on issues, for example, like double poles reminds people that, hey, you got to start paying attention because it's all around you. <laughs> uh,
0: Ruthann, you were nodding. I just wanted to allow you to jump in on that.
1: <laughs> so double poles continue to be an issue in Newton, and we work so hard. Hard and we're getting so little response from the utilities that I'm grateful that uh, Andy will help take the lead on this and force them. To deal with the double polls.
2: Yeah, we'll bring you into the hearing. Thank you. I'll be there.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: Mario Cuomo many years ago, I don't know if you know this, Andy, used to say you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose, so that you have to get down to that nitty gritty once you get the actual title, position, office, whatever it is. And I'm wondering what is the first thing that has that you've met now as new lawmakers in which you realize, all right, we're
4: governing in prose, because it's this is tough, Lydia. I wouldn't say anything has been tough. I would say that there's a real understanding, even amongst folks when you're in the position is, okay, so there was a coalition that formed to get you there, and now that coalition, to a certain extent, has disbanded. Mm-hmm. And there was one time where they all could agree, and that was to get you into that office. Now, they may not all agree on different things, mm-hmm. right? So you're having conversations at a different level, constantly bridge-building is what I'm finding I'm doing. And what I think we had expected is that there would be a certain amount of bridge-building with the folks who were with my opponent, right, and making sure that they understood we got to know each other, do the listening tours, and go to their homes, and so on and so forth. Forth. But it's back to, you know, the basics to going back to even the base for my campaign and saying, all right, let's have those conversations again. They may agree on one thing. They do not wildly. They absolutely disagree on how to get there. And so how do we have real conversations? And then also, I think what's really important is um, once you're governing is to make sure that everyone feels that you're accessible. Mm -hmm. And that I'm really dedicated to in making sure that, you know, more of our posts are bilingual, making sure our newsletter is in more than one language, that we're inviting just as much Latino media as we are to the globe, that we're sending out the press to both sides to make sure that you are truly accessible so that you can actually govern with everybody at the table.
1: All right, Ruth Ann Fuller, Governing in Prose. Governing and pros. I'll give you two examples. One, I talked a lot about on the campaign, our road system, making sure it works for drivers, but also for pedestrians and bicyclists so that we can get some people out of their cars, reduce some of the congestion. Right now, though, we're looking inch by inch at the redesign of Needham Street, and it's Every crosswalk, every light pole, every intersection has to be designed well. You have to make sure that the bike lane works not only for the bicyclists but also for the vision-impaired that are walking right next to it so the details really matter. That's one. Another example is I'm committed to building a top-notch senior center in Newton, but now you have to really work through it. Should there be one? Mm. Should there be more than one? Should it be an intergenerational community center or exclusively for seniors? What programs are going to need to be there in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And then how do we pay for it? So the details really matter once you're governing and governing in prose. And to you, Andy.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that the first thing we did when coming in was uh, realize that we're coming in in the second year of session, right? So the train has left the station on a lot of the issues that matter to us. Um, and anything that we file now obviously is going to go through the the process that bills go through. So we did an analysis of what's already in motion, how can we get behind, you know, something that's already in play so that we're not duplicating efforts and we're being as efficient as possible.
0: Let me pause and say you're coming in in the second year because Brian Dempsey left to go to ML Strategies. Correct. So that's, what created
2: the special election now continue yep Mm -hmm. and so some of those things that we're focusing on uh, one of the bills is breakfast after the bell and so it's ensuring that kids from particularly low-income families have access to breakfast when they go to school two other issues are automatic voter registration Uh, we're seeing some great momentum on that And the reasoning, obviously, is we're looking to expand the electorate. There are over 700,000 people in Massachusetts that are eligible to register to vote but haven't registered. But also it would save the state money. It's something like $2 every time somebody fills out a paper to register to vote, right? So if we're automatically registering people, it's not only good for our democratic process, but it actually saves our state money. And then there's a lot of great momentum on pre-K and that all the studies have shown that— the greatest ROI on taxpayer dollars uh, may very well be. Return on investment. Right. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) I've been talking about this too much. You can tell, uh, has been in early education. At one point, In our society, we defined education as K through 12, right? And we said that we want to expand access to K through 12 because only folks of higher incomes had access to that. But our definition of public education has changed, I think, today if we want to compete in the new economy. And that should include early education to something after 12, right? Whether that's community college, some sort of training, um, et cetera. So it's looking at redefining what public education actually means.
0: Okay. if You're just tuning in. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with State Representative Andy Vargas, Boston City Councilor Lydia Edwards, and the Mayor of Newton, Ruth Ann Fuller. So here's my question. How will you all define a measure of success for yourselves? And by that, I don't mean, you know, some legislation. It may That may be for you. But is there some personal measure you set for yourself that you will think, no matter what happens, I'll feel like I succeeded here? Now, let's see who I'll start with. All right, Ed Fuller.
1: It's uh, so timely, your question. Sometimes we politicians tend to talk in slogans about transmitting a Newton that's better, greater, and more inclusive. And turning that into reality and making sure it's actually touching real people in Newton is so important. So I'm working actually even with our department heads right now to create a dashboard that I can look at sometimes daily, sometimes it's weekly, sometimes monthly or quarterly to know what is happening in the city and are we actually making progress. So it's everything from How many potholes got filled this past week to what progress are we making on actually building a senior center to legislation that is so important to partner with our city council? Are we actually moving forward with the new zoning reform ordinance that's so important to our future? And I really believe that you have to know where you're going and have goals and measure your progress towards them. And so that you can also change course when either your goal needs to change or your strategy for getting there. So I'm writing that down and putting it on paper and could be sharing it, not just with our city staff, but also with our residents so all of us can see the progress we're making. Andy, what will be your personal measure of success?
2: Yeah, so I think the common theme, obviously, in public services, is that we're all here to try to make life better for people. Um, and that comes in different forms. I think for me, primarily, it's constituent services, right? And so it's returning every single phone call, responding to every email, following up with departments and ensuring that people are getting the services that they need. But sort of from a policy level, it's identifying what initiatives are already on the move and how can we get them over the hump issues that are obviously important to folks in my district. So, for example, with Breakfast After the Bell, that's something that, you know, 50 to 60 percent of uh, students in Haverhill would be impacted by. Um, so, it's identifying those issues and pushing them forward as best as we can. You know, the other part of being an elected office that I think we don't talk about often that we do is that it's what we do outside of the building, too. It's building consensus with already existing entities and organizations that maybe, if they partner together, can do things more efficiently, right? And so, for us, we've identified grade-level reading as one of our top priorities. And a lot of that... Obviously, there's, there's a policy level stuff, but it's also bringing the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club, the public school district, together to talk about how can we launch a district-wide campaign around reading in Haverhill. So that's going to be another measure of success that we look at uh, at the end of this session.
4: Lydia? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways in, in which I, I hope to measure my success, along with looking at constituent services, because that's really what you majority of the job as a city councilor is really just getting those to those potholes and making sure that the trees are pruned correctly or making sure that the trash is picked up and just making sure the day-to-day grind that people are dealing with is something that you're also dealing with and that they feel that you're there and that it matters to you just as much as them but i think also looking at a couple other things it's the bench that you set as a leader so Mm. it's who comes in and who you give internships to who you're able to say now i mean i I thought the example of andy coming in to the state house at six and then becoming a state rep is a perfect example of how giving access to folks, showing them what the job is, showing them government could actually help to set up for our future leaders. So I hope to be part of that and to be able to say one day, oh, wow, look at this kid. He or she was my my intern and now they're the senator. I mean, I think that that's really important. I think also it's the voices that are empowered by your leadership. So uh, one of the biggest things I've noticed is that we don't have any Spanish speakers calling in to my office. And I know I ran on being a Spanish speaker. I know I went out to the community mm-hmm. a great deal and still we're getting no calls. I consider that a challenge for me and that, okay, fine, if if coming here is not working, then I need to figure out how to go out there. And so seeing more of my community be involved is a huge measure of success. And then finally, I think, it's the tables that you can set as a leader. I think Andy alluded to that. It's the coalitions that you can create, but also in the toughest problems, especially with developers, how we're setting a new conversation. Not so much us versus you, but how we are going to work together to build the East Boston, the Charlestown, and the North End that we need and that you as a developer will hopefully respond to. So being able to set those conversations differently and stop with the the constant fight, but really get to the solutions.
0: So last question to each of you, because you all had really tough campaigns. It was close toward the end, but you made it. People made a choice deliberately. Do you think that your elections say something about a significant shift in greater Boston politics,
2: Andy? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, We talked about this during the campaign and reminded folks that the results of our election would send a message beyond who was elected, right? I mean, because we were talking about protecting immigrants in our community. We were talking about very progressive issues that help working people in Haverhill. Um, and there was a lot of pushback on, you know, you might not be able to win with that message. This is a purple district, you know, good luck. And so uh, I think what our election and so many others across the state proved is that you can win by defending working people. You can win by still advocating for those who are on the margins of society, uh, that these are still values that people hold near and dear to their hearts, uh, and that if you have an authentic conversation with them as to why those values are important, you can still win, and that you can still win on a positive campaign. So, is that a shift? Yes. I would say it's a bit of a shift, right? Okay. We still got a lot of work to do. Trust me, it took a lot of conversations door to door, but um, I think we're heading in the right direction.
0: Okay,
1: Ruth Ann? I did have a very close election, but what I think it showed is how hungry people are, whether they supported me or a terrific opponent, Scott Lennon, how hungry they are at the local level to know who their mayor is, to get involved. They understand that it's so hard to affect what's going on in Washington, D.C., and to a certain extent so depressing right now, that being involved locally really matters. And lots of people came out. They cared. They came to the debates. And even now that I'm in office, when I have office hours, last night it was supposed to be an hour and a half Three and a half hours later, I finally left the office. People care, and they care in Newton. They're active, they're involved, and they want to make a difference right here where they can. Is that a shift? I think it has accelerated in the last two, three, four, five years. When you look at the ratings for Congress Mm -hmm. and the confidence that they have in it, I think people are more and more looking at the city level for progress and hope and a change. So,
0: Lydia, does uh, your election indicate a shift?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent. I think
4: it's a shift... Uh, reflective in the population that we have in Boston. More of us are not born and raised in the city. And I think for so long, politics had been related to you have been here, your parents have been here, your grandparents have been here. And so it's a new narrative of who is Boston and who can be a Bostonian proudly. I am, even though I'm an Air Force brat, you know, because of my mother being in the military, I grew up everywhere. I think there's a shift also in who gets to define the quote unquote line um, and who gets to be in it. In terms of politics. And I think I'm not necessarily the pinnacle sign of that, but there's certainly a shift. You know, if you look at Michelle Wu, you look at Ayanna Presley, both two at-large counselors who are the top vote getters consistently. And you see who can be and be defining the future of Boston. And I think as also in general, I think, again, as, as Andy also stated and I've stated before as well, being able to run purely as yourself, you can connect with everyone and i think for so many of us we were told right andy that don't expose that part of you or don't be all of that of you because you'll alienate a certain voters and i'm very proud of the trump supporters who came out proudly for me and i'm i continue to work with them and they and i think that that also is a shift
0: well, thank you all very much. Pleasure. Being Pleasure here. being here. Andy Vargas is a Democratic Massachusetts State Representative for the 3rd Essex District. Lydia Edwards is the Boston City Councilor representing District 1. And Ruth Ann Fuller is the Mayor of Newton. Coming up, some call Black Lives Matter a modern iteration of the civil rights movement led by a new generation of activists. But others see the group as a subversive organization which poses a threat to America. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn-Cullors unpacks the myths and tells her story of how the grassroots organization came to be in her new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is under the radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and this is under the radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyep. That's Creole for something extra. Black Lives Matter first captured national attention in the days after the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer. Soon, the organization was on the ground in Ferguson, Missouri, protesting the killing of Michael Brown and concretizing its campaign against police brutality. By now, many know the name Black Lives Matter, but it's likely that far fewer know the story of the women, that's right, women, who created it. That changes now with the new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. The book is written by Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn-Cullors and co-authored by Asha Bandele. Patrice joins me now from the studios of Clark Atlanta University and Atlanta, Georgia. Patrice, welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Let me start this way, because I think there will be a lot of people listening to this conversation who think they know what Black Lives Matter is all about, but have really never heard from one of the central people involved in the movement. So let's start by having you explain briefly what is Black Lives Matter and what is the mission?
3: Black Lives Matter is a global network. We started off as a phrase, turned into a hashtag, and evolved into 40-chapter network across the globe here in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in Canada. And our central mission is to uplift Black people and protect us from anti-Black racism. Now, your book, the memoir part of this title, is key, I believe, because you could have
0: written a book that explained Black Lives Matter movement, as you just did, but you didn't. You also made it personal. Why did you decide to share so much of your life?
3: I wanted people to see the coming-of-age story of a person who becomes an activist and an organizer. Oftentimes, with coming-of-age stories, we see You know, especially when it's about, quote, a successful black person, they get out the hood and they go to corporate America. Well, that's not my story. My story, the success is because of the movement. My success is because we've been able to galvanize black people for across the world to really show up for our lives. And I wanted people to see why that was important. What experiences shaped my clarity that there had to be more than state violence for black people?
0: So, Patrice, I'd yeah. like you to go to page 14 in the chapter, Community Interrupted, and read from there, if you would.
3: The alleyway is where my brothers hang out with their friends and talk shit, probably about girls and all the things they probably never have done with them. Monty and Paul are 11 and 13 years old, and there are no green spaces, no community centers to shoot hoops in, no playgrounds with handball courts, No parks for children to build castles in, so they make the alleyway their secret place and go there to discuss the things they do not let me in on. I am the girl. Nine years old, I am the little sister banished behind the broken black wrought iron gate that tries but fails to protect us from the outside world. It's from behind that gate that I watch the police roll up on my brothers and their friends, not one of whom is over the age of 14, and all of whom are doing absolutely nothing but talking, they throw them up on the wall. They make them pull up their shirts. They make them turn out their pockets. They roughly touch my brother's bodies, even with their privates, while from the behind the gate, I watch, frozen. I cannot cry or scream. I cannot breathe, and I cannot hear anything. Not the siren that would have been accompanying the swirl of red lights. Not the screeching at the boys. Get on the f***ing wall. Later, I will be angry with myself. Why didn't I help them?
0: You know, Patrice, that I read that and it just I mean so many parts of this book just, just really go through you. I think it has to be hard for anybody to read this book and not feel the nine year old you watching what then becomes a routine that you see in your community, which is why the chapter in your book is called Community Interrupted. And the name of your book, by the way, is When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. And I'm speaking to Patrice Khan-Cullors, who is a co-author of that book. So I read that and I thought to myself, whew, it literally took my breath away as I read it. And I wondered, Mm -hmm. as you were writing it and going back, uh, recalling these incidents, was it clearer to you how these events shaped you for really your life as a organizer?
3: Yes, for me, I witnessed so much policing in my neighborhood, towards my family. Uh, Many of my loved ones were incarcerated, and um, some of them were brutalized by law enforcement. And I knew and felt that we just didn't deserve this. We didn't deserve it. The people in my community didn't deserve it. And I wanted to do more than just feel angry and feel sad. I didn't know what that was as a child, obviously, but I felt it inside of me that I needed to do more. There was just this need to join something, be a part of something. And it, it wouldn't be until I'm a teenager um, where I go to a high school that is incredible, Cleveland Humanities Magnet. And I, it's a social, just, it's social justice programming and I read Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks. And in those readings start to find my voice and language around what I had experienced.
0: Patrice, you also, in your schooling, ended up in a situation that was very far from your community. Um, So you are now one of a few Black people in, in this other world that you go to for school. And it's also a world of quite different privilege than you experience in your world and you have a chance to see what systemic racism looks like. I wonder if you talk about the part of the book in which you go to the home of a friend, a new friend, and discover that that friend's father is actually the landlord for you and your mom.
3: Yes, I was hanging out with a new friend of mine, and I went to her home, which, you know, as a child, when you're growing up in poverty and you go to someone's home where they're wealthy or middle class or upper middle class... I mean, it literally feels completely different, looks completely different. It looked like a a mansion. It was a two-story home. Everybody had their own room. You know, every child had their own room. And we're sitting at dinner, and the father was asking me questions, and he was asking me what my parents did. We eventually got to where I live, and he said, you know, he said the address of where I lived, and I said, yeah, those are my apartments, and... He said, oh, I own those apartments. And it was like my heart dropped into my stomach and I didn't know why at, uh, you know, 13 years old, why that would impact me so much. But I would later understand that it's because we were living without a refrigerator. We were in an apartment building that had roaches. We were in an apartment building that was um, not often kept up. And while I'm here in his home with his daughter, and this gorgeous home, and then I would go back to my home that is, you know, clearly a home that hasn't been, a landlord hasn't taken care of. It was it was quite shocking.
0: So the, the combination of going to school and getting your mind opened in a new way and then experiencing these situations in which you realize that some people have a kind of privilege you had never imagined, and actually it impacts you, all sort of comes together as you're, going on as an adult doing that organizing work. And you formed an organization. It wasn't Black Lives Matter. It was something
3: else. (laughs) Talk about that, if you would. Thank you for asking this question, because, you know, so many people think that I started Black Lives Matter, and that's all I ever did. (laughs) That was the first thing I did. (laughs) I'm, in fact, a trained organizer, and I've created and developed collectives and organizations and institutions for quite some time. But Dignity and Power Now will be the first institution that I develop, a nonprofit, and that's a human rights organization that's fighting against torture inside L.A. County jails. My brother was unfortunately one of the people who had been tortured by the sheriff's department after he was brutally beaten when he was 19 years old. In 1999, he was then disappeared from us, which had become a common practice inside the L.A. County jails. They would literally say they couldn't find the person when in fact they were just keeping them from their family members because deputies didn't want to be reported for abuse. Dignity and Power Now starts because I came across the American Civil Liberties Union ACLU's 86-page complaint where it detailed 70 sworn statements from people who'd been brutally beaten by the sheriffs. And it was the first time where I read my brother's story He wasn't in that complaint, but it was so many stories that were just like his. And I was like, I have to do something. And I'm an artist, so the first thing I did is I created an art piece that toured around L.A. County for the year. But I called my mom and I called my brother and I said, they're finally being sued. And he said, finally, someone's going to get justice. But very quickly, you know, within that year, one of my good friends, Francisca Porcha, she came to a show of mine. She's also an organizer that I worked with, and she said what are we going to do? We have to do something with this. And we formed Dignity and Power Now and its first project was the coalition to end sheriff violence in LA jails. And we fought for permanent civilian oversight of the sheriff's department and we won. My guest is Patrice Kahn cullors She's co-founder of Black
0: Lives Matter and co-author with Asha Bandele of the book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter Memoir. Now, I want people to hear what the report said so they have a real understanding of the pain and what was driving you in this organization that you founded first. So why don't you go to page 158
3: and read some of the specifics that came out in that report. The scope of the report is staggering. The sheer number of individuals who were kicked in the testicles, set upon and beaten by several deputies at once, individuals who were tased for no apparent reason other than entertainment of guards, who had bones broken by guards wielding flashlights and other everyday tools that became instruments of extreme violence, and America's largest jail is breathtaking enough. But other elements of the torture almost break me as I read the words of a civilian who testified about a wheelchair-bound prisoner whom deputies pulled off his bed, kicked and kneed in his ribs, back and neck, and then shot with pepper spray in his face. I began to hyperventilate and remember my brother on his knees drinking out of the toilet. My God, I can't breathe. We can't breathe. Mr. G testifies about the deputy who forcibly searched a prisoner's buttocks with a flashlight, placing the flashlight half an inch into the prisoner's rectum, which caused extensive injury that the man bled and bled. But he didn't complain because the last prisoner who did was taken away and attacked by several other guards, the screams and haunting that refuses to be calmed or set aside. It returns and returns. Ah, no, please. Fingers, hands, collarbones, jaws, and ribs were broken. Eyes were popped out of sockets. Arms and shoulders were regularly dislocated. Prisoners who were already rendered unconscious continued to be assaulted. In most every case, the prisoner was reported by independent observers as not resisting. Many were handcuffed from the moment the attack was initiated. One man was stripped naked and locked in a cell with other prisoners who were encouraged to rape him, which they did. Male guards participated in torture, female guards participated in torture. Everyone knew what was happening. Medical staff knew what was happening. The sheriff knew what was happening.
0: That's my guest, Patrice Concollers, reading from her book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. It's our February selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, I wanted to put that on the table, Patrice, because all of that happened before Black Lives Matter. So what, yeah, so what triggered <laughs> Black Lives Matter was the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin. And it came out of a moment of pain and then just took off. Talk about that moment of conception, if you would, and then what happened after.
3: Well, I think what's important is many of us come from a generation that have been neglected. We come from a generation that have been over-policed, where our communities have been ripped apart by law enforcement. So when Trayvon Martin is killed by a vigilante, we were not just upset about it, we were wondering who's going to be held accountable. And then George Zimmerman goes on trial, and there's always a racially charged trial for every generation. Well, this was ours. And as he was acquitted on all charges, I couldn't believe it. I just, I literally could not believe that we could all know, the jury could all know that this man killed this 17-year-old and yet acquitted him. I went to social media. I found Alicia Garza, She wrote Black Lives Matter. She's a good friend of mine. I put a hashtag on it, and then I said, "That's it. That's our phrase. That's what we're gonna use." And I called her, you know, asked her, "Let's. You want to do something? You wanna, you wanna start Black Lives Matter? You wanna create a political project?" She said yes, and that's you know the evolution of Black Lives Matter. Opal Tometi, our third co-founder, would join us a few days later, and we would create the first sort of iteration of Black Lives Matter, which is asking organizations and people to use it to talk about issues facing Black people. So that's the creation.
0: We've heard the buildup to that and what was happening in your own personal life because this is a memoir as well as an explanation of Black Lives Matter. Shortly thereafter, after Black Lives Matter just becomes something that people resonate with, then you get pushback and very, very strong pushback. So let's take a listen to a compilation of clips from news reports denouncing Black Lives Matter as thugs, terrorists and an extremist group. And this clip includes the words of George Zimmerman, the voices of Tommy Lahren, Bill O'Reilly, Tucker Carlson and then GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump.
1: Listen up, Black Lives Matter. When you converge upon the St. Louis
0: mayor's house, throw paint, rocks, and break windows, you are unfit to call your organization a social
1: justice movement. Thousands more Americans are being murdered because
2: police are being more passive since the Ferguson situation and the Black
0: Lives Matter protests.
1: So the whole, like, pigs in a blanket, murder cop stuff, that that was the nuanced message that you're describing?
0: During Wednesday's questioning, Zimmerman was asked if he thought Apperson was part of the Black Lives Movement, in which he responded no, but then went on to say he believes they are terrorists.
4: I mean, I've seen them marching down the street, essentially calling death to the police, and I think we're going to have to look into that, especially in light of what's happening with these maniacs going and shooting our police.
0: So uh, your book is your response to that, of these kinds of comments being made by a whole Plethora of people as we've just played. And also, just a complete misreading of what the organization was about, I mean, at the very least. So, (laughs) uh, part of what your book answers is what it felt like when you were first called a terrorist.
3: Yeah, it was devastating. It was disturbing. It was confusing. I didn't understand although I understand right there's a long legacy of calling black people who are fighting for freedom terrorists let's let's talk about Asada Shakur let's talk about Angela Davis um, let's talk about Dr. Martin Luther King for goodness sake but to be labeled a terrorist knowing good and well that the work of Black Lives Matter had always been about keeping our community safe calling for our community safety was jarring So
0: in an article in The New York Times, Barbara Ramsby took a different take. She explained Black Lives Matter, described it this way, as radical democracy in action, not top-down leadership, but working closely with folks on the ground in communities and building strength. And I would think you would agree with that.
3: Agreed. And I love Barbara Ramsby. She's one of my mentors. She's amazing. She has been a firm lover of Black Lives Matter. She's lifted us up. And she's right. We don't believe in top-down leadership. This isn't an organization where we're trying to wait for someone to come save us. We know that we have to, and we're going to save ourselves.
0: Well, it's been noted around the world, even if people in the United States, some people are struggling around uh, your mission and your purpose, You were awarded, Black Lives Matter was awarded last year, the Sydney Peace Prize. And you went there to accept the prize on behalf of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Now, the ceremony took place on November the 2nd, 2017. I want people to hear just a little bit of what you had to say.
3: Black Lives Matter has become what Black communities all over the world needed to become. At times, it's a hashtag. At other moments, it's a declaration, a cry of rage, a sharing of light. It has become a moment and a movement that is international worldwide in its scope of liberation for black people and oppressed people everywhere. We have over 40 chapters, y'all. Those chapters are in the U.S., they are in Canada, in the United Kingdom, and they're developing throughout the world.
0: So, Patrice against the image that some would portray of your being a violent organization. In fact, (laughs) some people in the world uh, see the exact opposite. You're peacemakers, as they see. And I also want you to, to really respond to the fact that some people say, we haven't seen them, so they must be dead. We don't see them in the headlines anymore. There's a failure to understand what's going on, which is actually articulating your real purpose, which is being quiet in the local communities.
3: Yes, and it's so interesting, you know, when people ask that question, including media, because... I simply respond, that's not our fault. (laughs) Well, it's true. you, You all get to decide who's in the headlines and who's not. But that doesn't mean our work stops. That doesn't mean our work is interrupted. In fact, Black Lives Matter chapters, and I would argue, you know, the larger movement for Black Lives is in the thick of it, really challenging local government organizing around, pushing district attorneys to decriminalize drugs, you know, challenging Attorney General Jeff Sessions and his obsession with marijuana use and criminalizing marijuana use. I mean, we are at the forefront of having some of the most provocative and innovative conversations about how we challenge the criminal justice system and its impacts on black people.
0: Patrice, I'd love you to read from page seven, which is your direct response to being called a terrorist. And this is Patrice Khan-Cullors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, co-author with Asha Bandele of the book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir.
3: We will remember that Nelson Mandela remained on the FBI's list of terrorists until 2008. Even still, the accusation of being a terrorist is devastating, and I allow myself space to cry quietly as I lie in bed on a Sunday morning, listening to a red-faced, hysterical Rudy Giuliani spit lies about us three days after Dallas. Like many of the people who embody our movement, I have lived my life between the twin terrors of poverty and the police. Coming of age in the drug war climate that was ratcheted up by Ronald Reagan and then Bill Clinton, the neighborhood where I lived and loved and the neighborhoods where many of the members of Black Lives Matter have lived and loved were designated war zones, and the enemy was us. The fact that more white people have always used and sold drugs than black and brown people, and yet when we close our eyes and think of a drug seller or user, the face most of us see is black or brown, tells you what you need to know if you cannot readily imagine how someone can be doing no harm and yet be harassed by police. Literally breathing while black became cause for arrest, or worse.
0: You know, Patrice, I want people to understand that your book, um, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, really is so personal and that while you talk about these very heavy issues and some of the deep concerns that your organization is facing, there's a lot of joy in it. You talk about your life and your family and, and the joy that you find not just from being around other people who share the same mission and focus, but also love you up. There's a lot of love in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to put that mm-hmm. I want people to know that. So they I'm think I can't read this. It's just too heavy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's interesting. One of my good friends, uh, Michelle Taboo in L.A., known for years, I think we've known each other for almost eight years now, she actually wrote this beautiful review on Facebook where she says, I wasn't sure I wanted to read this. I wasn't sure I could handle it. I wasn't sure I wanted to re-trigger myself, And she said, "But it, this book was so deeply healing for me." And she said, "I cried tears of rage. I cried tears of sadness, but more importantly, I cried tears of joy because it was just the release that I needed.
0: I think a lot of people will feel that way. Now here's a question for you. I know as you travel around, you're getting all kinds of responses to the book, and a lot of them quite positive. How do you feel about being a part of black history? February is black <laughs> history Month, but but you are
3: black history. <laughs> I mean, you are. I am. You know, I. it's still interesting. I think I won't ever fully grasp the role in Black history that I've played. I'm grateful and honored that I have and I will continue to. This is my life's work. This is what makes me feel healthy and whole. And seeing the things that I saw growing up and having to experience the things I saw, this was the only way that I could live in this country and feel good about myself.
0: What do you want people to take away from the book?
3: I want people to take action. We are living under probably one of the most scariest governments that I've ever lived under. Every single day there's a new law enacted, there's a new policy, there's a new executive order that is about destroying our communities and other marginalized communities. We got to join something, be a part of an organization, join a Black Lives Matter chapter. If you're not black, be a part of Black Lives Matter. You still can. This movement is for all of us really this is our time to not just change america but change the world.
0: Thank you so much for joining me Patrice. Thanks for having me. Patrice Khan-Colors is co-founder of the social justice organization Black Lives Matter and co-author with Asha Bandele of When They Call You A Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. It's our February selection for Bookmarked: The Under the Radar Book Club. The book is available in stores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahy is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.